Welcome to the Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is Katherine Schultz, author of Being Wrong and her most recent book, Lost and Found, an insightful and moving exploration of grief and love, and how those two emotions have the power to change us, transform us, and expand our concept of who we are and how we can live. Catherine is a staff writer at The New Yorker whose work has appeared in The Best American Science and Nature Writing, The Best American Travel Writing, and The Best American Food Writing. She won a National Magazine Award and a Pulitzer Prize for the really big one, her article about seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. A native of Ohio, Catherine lives with her family on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. In today's conversation, we'll explore the concepts of loss and discovery, both from the personal perspective and from that as a creative. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. You know, your, your memoir, Lost and Found, grew out of your essay, Losing Streak, that appeared in The New Yorker about the things we lose, our reaction to those losses, and ultimately about the death of your father. You wrote, disappearance reminds us to notice, transience to cherish, fragility to defend. Loss is a kind of external conscience, urging us to make better use of our finite, finite days. Yet there is that obstinate tendency to believe that everything will go on forever, our health, our relationships, our careers, and when something comes to an end, I think many of us respond like children wailing, why? When you wrote that essay and later the book, was it as much to help yourself come to terms with the losses that you had experienced and those yet to come as it was to serve as a guide for those lucky few who still have everything that matters to them close at hand? You know, I would not exactly say that I wrote it to help myself come to term with terms with these things. I think that was a little bit true of the essay because it um, it was published really not very long after my father died. My dad died in September of 2016, and that essay came out in February of 2017. So I think it's true that when I was working on that, I was really kind of in the in the throes of working through all the kinds of questions that grief raises, including, to your point, this really fundamental one of uh, how we make our peace with this just inevitability uh, that, that the things we love will not go on forever and the people we love will not go on forever. But by the time I sat down to work on the book, um, I, I, I feel like I had kind of walked myself through that particular set of emotions. And I say that cautiously because I don't mean to suggest, oh, I was like done grieving and grief is this, you know, very straightforward road. And at some point it ends and, and you make a, you know, right turn or a left turn and you're somewhere else. I, I don't think that's how grief functions, but people do often ask if the book was cathartic in some ways. And I, uh, I honestly don't feel that it was because I, I guess my, my feeling as a writer is it is my job once I have had the emotions and, and once I have had the experiences to return to them uh, in, in the kind of calmer, cooler, professional light in, in which I do and figure out how to render those experiences for readers in a way that will be precise and in a way that will be meaningful and useful, um, which I guess is just to say that I, you know, I feel that the, the emotional work has to come first. And, and then my job is to do the intellectual work of, of translating that experience for others. 
Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, well, what you had said earlier about how um, you didn't mean to suggest that you were done grieving. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I don't know if you've had this experience because your dad died um, a year after mine, but every now and then it comes back and it hits you so fresh, you think it just happened. And it doesn't necessarily always correlate to some, um, like their birthday or something along those lines. Uh, sometimes it can just come out of the blue and it's almost like you just have to write it out because you know that it's, it's going to ease up a bit, but you know, you're, you're right. It, um, and, and it is challenging to, to be both objective when you're writing it at the same time, it's something that is so subjective because it occurred to you personally, you're not interviewing somebody else who had a loss. Um, you know, one, one of the things, cause I've talked to other people who have written memoirs and they've, they've, um, explored really traumatic events or painful experiences. They talk about how challenging it was to maintain that artistic distance that you, you just talked about while at the same time, really deeply exploring the reality and writing about the reality that happened to them. How were you able to walk that creative tightrope when you were working, especially on the book, which is, you know, much longer process than, than the, than writing the essay? Well, I guess I would say that I don't feel that what was called for in a work like this is, is anything like objectivity. Um, I, I would return to that word I used earlier, which is precision. I think that the, the job is to summon with its, as much specificity as possible what an experience was like and, and really you know, sit down and think through like, okay, not, not what do people say that grieving is like or, or not what do people say falling in love is like, but what was it actually like for me, you know, and, and you know, the, the kind of lived texture of that experience. And then the kind of secondary task, once you kind of have a handle on right, this is, this is what I want to say is, well, how do I say it, right? Like, what is the, what, what's the, what's the language? What's the metaphor? What's the word? What's the, the um, structure? What's the tense? You know, all these kind of writerly questions about, about how you do this thing. So it's this kind of two-part process and in no way is it antithetical to the emotion of the experience. You know, that of course is what you're trying to summon. Um, and it's not, uh, it's not that it's somehow cool and dispassionate, uh, but it is, I think, a revisiting with an eye toward how do I put this on the page? Meaning when you are actually in the grips of a, of a very intense emotional experience, wonderful or difficult or whatever it may be, uh, that is that is not the moment to write it for a broader audience. It might well be the moment to sit down and write it for yourself uh, because it is cathartic or because that will be useful to you later if you do want to write about it in this different way. Uh, but, but no one in such a moment can or should be thinking about what's the right word, right? In, the, in that moment, you're just trying to live through the emotion or, uh, or, or if it's a joyful one, just, just um, capture it and fully embrace it. So they're, to my mind, again, they're, they're very different stages of a, of a process of, of making sense of the experience of, of being alive, I guess. Yeah. And, and of course, 
it's not like as if the first time we write it is the way it ends up either. There is a, a certain amount of editing, revising, <clears throat> as we well know. But were there also times when you had to set the book aside, the, the project aside, because it was just getting too intense emotionally for you? Actually not. Um, and I, I think that speaks to kind of what I was explaining earlier that uh, the intense emotion had to precede the project. Um, which isn't to say that I didn't feel things very strongly while writing the book, uh, again, both in the grief and in the love sections. Um, but, and I, you know, I don't want to dismiss the degree to which that colored my days, meaning it certainly felt very different to be uh, writing the found section of the book, which is about falling in love, uh, and also more generally about this, this really joyful uh, kind of human experience of finding all kinds of things. Um, there was there was certainly a different emotional quality to my days when I was working on that than to the days when I was thinking kind of nonstop about losing my father in specific and, and losing things in general. Um, but it was not a it was not a burdensome uh, experience. It was when it was most difficult. Um, for the most part, it was most difficult as a writer. You know, the the what made the lost section hard to write was not, as you might guess, that it was uh, about losing my father. Uh, in fact, parts of getting to write that felt really wonderful to me. You know, I got to sit and think about my dad a lot and think about not merely his death, but his life and about the remarkable man he had been and the remarkable father he had been uh, and, and experienced a lot of gratitude around that and a lot of uh, happiness in revisiting those memories. Uh, you know, what made it difficult to write is I think what makes uh, almost anything difficult to write, which is uh, writing can be really hard, right? You know, you're invested, you care a lot. Uh, that law section is the first section of the book. So I was very mindful. Beginnings matter, you know, drawing readers in matter. Um, it mattered enormously to me that, uh, that readers of the book, whether or not they liked the book, I very much wanted them to fall in love with the two main characters, my father and my partner. Uh, so there were certainly, um, you know, writerly, pressures on it uh, that sometimes made me think I have to knock off that I'm not getting anywhere. Uh, but I was not, um, I, I did not have to set the book aside the way that sometimes, you know, after my father died, I had to set everything aside because, because I was overwhelmed by grief and I just needed to sit in that and be in that or conversely needed very much to get away from it for a little while. It, um, it was a very different experience than, than the, the pure grieving had been. What were the unexpected benefits of writing about these two very personal life events, losing someone you love and finding someone to love? Well, I think I just gestured towards one of them, which it, it, it's really, um, it's wonderful to get to think with specificity. I keep coming back to that word, <laughs> to get to think uh, uh, specifically, but also at length, I guess, about love, you know, because yes, part of this book about is about grief and part of this book is about falling in love. It really is literally a love story, but both of those sections are fundamentally about love. You know, they are about love of father and love of partner. Uh, they're about the love, if we're lucky, we, we find and are given within families. And it did actually feel like a um, tremendous gift to get to spend so much time thinking about that. And, and honestly, thinking about happiness, you know, 
I think one of the kind of strong, uh, if slightly covert themes of this book really is happiness. It's, it's about happy families. It's about how, even in the face of the inevitability of loss and in the face of grief, what, what does it look like to have a good life and to have a life that, uh, that enables you to feel joy and to feel gratitude? And those to me feel like the big, deep, central questions of existence. And, and it felt... Um, unexpected and delightful to to find myself with the great gift of truly a couple of years to just just sit and think about those things and think about how they had operated in my life and uh and and try to figure out how to share them with others and you know there were sort of ancillary gifts as well I had conversations with my mother and my sister and my partner and my in-laws uh, that I doubt I would have had if I hadn't been writing the book because it is so personal and I wanted to draw on their memories and their stories as well. And, you know, it's um, whether or not you uh, ever plan to write anything at all about your family, I, I encourage everyone to sit down and, uh, and, and make an evening, make a weekend when you, when you do talk about your lives and talk about your memories and get your family talking about theirs because it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly precious and it's wonderful to have those conversations and preferably have them on record so you can go back to them or your children or your grandchildren can go back to them. So all of that felt very, very special to me. That does. And, and you're right. I mean, the, the whole idea, sometimes I think people shy away from doing it with their, especially with their parents, <clears throat> because it's like, well, you know, the hidden agenda is because at some point, mom or dad, you're going to die and I want to have this memory. And, you know, it, it can be difficult. I know um, it was much harder for me um, to have had those conversations with my mother because she would become really upset when she would talk about the past. Not that her past was terrible, but it was you know, it was, it was at a time when she was already dealing with cancer. So it's almost like she didn't want to look back because it was making her feel like there was nothing ahead. Whereas my dad, he was, he, he had a, he had a strong sense of humor and he was just very objective about everything. And, and um, I think you're right. I, I think if we started sooner and if we have children, maybe have the children engage with their grandparents um, because then it's, it's not, it's not, we want to remember you because at some point you're going to be gone, but more, we want to know what kind of person you were outside of being my mother or my father. And, and, and you're right. I, I think there is that sense of regret when you don't have those conversations. I think that's right. And I think I, I really hear what you're saying and appreciate that you're saying it. I, they can be hard conversations to have, even when the stories people have to tell are by and large uh, happy memories or, or interesting memories, um, which of course isn't the case for everyone in every family. Uh, but, but to your point, they can be difficult simply because they feel like um, they're kind of already a little bit from beyond the grave, you know, that we, the thing that occasions such conversations is the sense of the imminence of death and the imminence of endings. And that can be very difficult for people. And, you know, I think you're right that there are other ways to frame conversations like that, you know, um, to, to have children get to know their grandparents or, um, you know, have them in moments that don't feel uh, quite so fraught because there's no reason to believe the end is imminent. It's just a kind of abstract acknowledgement. But I will say, I think they're worth having 
even uh, even under those harder circumstances. Uh, and I think that they can feel like a gift not only to you know whoever is sitting there recording it and gets to listen to it later, but but ultimately like a gift to whoever is sharing it. I think all of us hope to somehow extend our lives beyond our lifespans, you know, and and hope that our children or our nieces or our nephews or or just you know some future pure person curious about life in the 21st century in Duluth or you know wherever you may be that that there's some value to our lives and, and that someone will find it meaningful and interesting and I will say, yeah I also think you know it's a little connected in my head however difficult it might be to initiate a conversation like that I think all of the things that are all of the conversations that uh, are attendant upon the notion of endings are very important and if you think that one is hard um, you know try the one that's about actual end-of-life decision making you know what do you want mom what do you want dad what do you want you know beloved partner do you want you know extraordinary measures do you not do you want to be at home do you not want to be at home what do you think about hospice care at what point how these are incredibly incredibly crucial conversations it is very difficult to have them at any stage but at no stage is it harder than when everyone is ex in extremis, you know, and, and the problem is already upon you and you're trying to think through it in real time. And even then it's, it's important. And, you know, if you haven't done it before then, and that's the moment you have, that's the moment to do it. And, and there can be real beauty and grace in that. I do think, um, you know, I have nothing but, but glowing things to say about the hospice care workers of the world. They are the salt of the earth. And I think help a lot of families through some very, very difficult moments and can provide some truly unexpected peace and serenity and, and grace in those moments. But that's just to say, I don't think that just because a conversation like, you know, dad, I'm turning on a tape recorder, like, let's talk about your childhood, just because the idea of death somehow hovers around that. And you're absolutely right to point out that it does. I don't think that's a reason to shy away from it. I think that um, we are all better served by, by finding ways to be honest. Uh, and, and we started here in this conversation in some ways to be honest about loss, you know, and about its scope in our life and find ways to kind of face it, you know, directly and, and not just bravely, but, you know, usefully, like something like that actually is a, a, a kind of useful step to take in the face of the inevitability of loss. So I, I encourage people to have those conversations, even if it feels a little hard to get them going. You know, you, you use the word useful, and, and I'm reminded of my dad. Um, he was, you know, a very, a very practical person. Okay. So we actually sat down um, right after he was diagnosed with cancer. And he said, all right, let, let's make a list. These are all the things you have to do as soon as I die. These are all the people you have to call first. These are all the people. I mean, down to where all did he want his opit to appear, phone numbers. I mean, it was such an incredibly helpful thing for me because I was the point person. And um, I, my mother, you could have never done that with my mother, but with my dad, it was, and, and I'll tell you what, just having all that information, because right when it happens, you think you know what to do. And from, you know, for a moment, you, you don't, you like just, you just suddenly just go blank for a second. And 
that was really incredibly useful. And, and I've talked to so many women my age and, and heard so many stories of my husband dropped out of a heart attack and I don't know where anything is. I don't mm -hmm. know who, what the bills are. I mean, you know, there's the practical side, but then like you said, the other questions, do you want hospice, end of life care? I mean, you nobody gets away without dying. So, you know, you're right. You do, you do have to have those conversations and they're not, they're not easy, but they're necessary. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And yes, I mean, what a wonderful uh, gift your dad gave you. It's incredible how sometimes just just the logistics, just the practical stuff is incredibly welcome. And of course, we know that when we're when we're trying to help somebody who's grieving, you know, there's a reason people bring food, right? Like some of what is actually most comforting in life is just attending to the basics. And I admire your dad. I think a, a very difficult and very compassionate and very smart reaction to have in the face of a diagnosis like that is like, all right, sweetheart, sit down. I'm going to tell you what's in the filing cabinet, you know, and, and, and who to call and, you know, everything you need to know, because unfortunately, you know, <laughs> as anyone knows, who's ever lost and grieved anyone as a grown adult, the process is not just purely emotional, you know, would that it were, but actually an enormous amount of it is, is logistical, right? It's like, you need a death certificate to cancel like the Netflix subscription. I mean, it's just insane, right? You know, there's this, you know, aside, you know, even once you get past the big obvious things of like, what kind of funeral, what kind of service, what's going to happen with the body, where are you going to be buried? You know, those are the things we all at least vaguely know we're going to have to contend with. But of course, there's um, this sort of endless laundry list of, of things beyond that. Uh, and some of which are, you know, fall squarely into the realm of simply the thoughtful, you know, I'm sure your father knew of people who would want to know, you know, about his passing uh, right away, who, who you wouldn't necessarily have known to reach out to. And some of it is just making sure that, uh, right, you aren't left scrambling to figure out what's the insurance company and, and what am I supposed to do now? And what's the password to this stupid account I need to get into to solve this problem with this other stupid account. That's a lot of what, of what the aftermath of a death looks like. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's just, you know, and, and, and sometimes I think that those are, are the most challenging parts. Cause you're, you're trying to, you're trying to be very practical. And I, I can remember, for instance, calling Medicare, God love the Medicare people. They were wonderful. But as soon as you, you had to say the words, my father died, you know, then, okay, cue the tears and, and God love them all for helping me. But it's, yeah, it is just that, that bizarreness of, of things going on. Um, the practical, the not practical, the fear that you're going to do something wrong and, yeah, you know, because there's, there's no do-overs when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about losses and gains, you know, the losses uh, of your father. And then, of course, the gain of finding someone that you love, which is enormously, if nothing else, enormously helpful when you're going through a terrible time. It's, it's really bad when you go through it and you're alone. Um, but now I'd like to talk about losses and gain, gains in terms of pursuing creative work. And, and that's something you touched on in the book and the essay when you said how difficult, the, the difficulty you had writing after your father died. And, and I was thinking back to, 
times in my life when I couldn't write, not because there was time constraints or other responsibilities, but I just couldn't find that creative part of myself. And, and it scared me because I didn't know who I was. If I couldn't write, that was, that was who I was. Had, have you ever gone through periods of, of time like that in your writing life where you felt unable to write or that you were losing your ability to write? I certainly have gone through times of greater and lesser desire to write. Uh, sometimes it feels joyful and urgent uh, and that urgency can be internal or external. You know, I've certainly had times when I have something I'm just dying to write and I sit down and get started on it. And then I've had times where I'm looking over my shoulder at a deadline and I buckle, finally buckle down at you know, midnight because it just has to happen. Um, but, but for sure, I've had times when it feels very, very hard to access the desire to write. And that to me is uh, a, a very unpleasant place to be. Um, I, I, and I don't mean the kind of everyday procrastination of like, oh, I have to do this thing and I don't like doing this thing. That's, that's normal every day, you know, part of, part of the writing life and you just have to grow up and, and get disciplined about it. And at some point, you know, you get mad enough at yourself that you sit down and do the work. <laughs> that, that's fine. I mean, deep apathy about writing or resistance to writing, uh, which, which I think is kind of a different beast than, than mere procrastination. And for me is uh, much scarier. It hasn't happened often in my life, I'm, I'm grateful to say, um, but, but it has. And to your point, one of those times was um, after my father died. I actually, it's interesting. I, I did right away have this thing I wanted to write. I, I knew I, I wanted to write about his loss in the, in the context of loss in general. Um, but it was very, very hard to focus. I mean, that was kind of a whole different, um, that wasn't even so much apathy as uh, it, it, it was more acute emotions than that. I, I wanted to eulogize my dad. I wanted to say the things I was at baseline, I think quite exhausted in that way that grief is exhausting. And obviously fatigue is not a good driver of <laughs> productive writing under any circumstances. Uh, I was having a lot of trouble reading, interestingly. I, I think my attention span was kind of shot, uh, which I think is also quite common in the aftermath of grief. And because reading has always felt to me like the necessary precursor for writing, the whole, the whole task seemed a little bit cut off at the knees in a certain way. Uh, so certainly I did experience that uh, after the death of my father and a handful of other times in my professional life, I've just for one reason or another felt a kind of deep, deep, deep resistance to the whole idea of writing. And uh, I, I agree that is a, um, it's a really tough and not fun place to be as a writer. <laughs> For those who are experiencing it and think that means they're never going to write again, give us, give us some words of wisdom. How did you pull yourself out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one most important thing is to figure out why you're feeling that. You know, I, I sometimes find, sometimes it's, it's basic and it's not, it doesn't need to become this big emotional overwhelming thing. You know, sometimes when I... I'm stuck on a writing project and don't want to do it and find that I do have that resistance or I keep avoiding it. Uh, I, 
often find that actually there is a genuine problem in the thing that I'm writing, meaning the problem isn't just me not wanting to do it. There is actually an intellectual difficulty. Uh, I've started down the wrong path, or I haven't figured out what I actually want to say, or there I'm I'm actually trying to say a thing that isn't quite right. You know, if I really step back and think about it, I don't quite think it's honest, or I don't quite think it's accurate, or I just haven't figured out what it, what it is I'm supposed to be doing, and all of those, which are actually in is emotional problems I find you know you can feel this kind of resistance to the work or this lack of desire and it's, it's really because the work you need to be doing isn't sitting down and creating sentences the work you need to be doing is figuring out like well what what is happening with this piece right like what's or this book or this idea or whatever it is I'm trying to write what's going on like why can I not do this and I think that is the question that has to kind of lead you out of any sort of writing doldrums because you need to know like is it just an intellectual problem and I need to step away from the laptop and go for a walk and think until I've solved this or talk to someone and talk it through until I've solved this? Or is it an emotional problem? Is something going on in my life? I just lost someone or I'm, you know, I'm upended emotionally in some way. And, you know, in that case, if it really is just, you know, what do I need to do? Do I need to address the emotional problem in some deep way? Is there something else I could be writing that would remind me that I can write and remind me of the joy of writing, but remove me from whatever the, the set of emotions is that's so difficult? Uh, or to be perfectly honest is the most common one. Like, is this actually not a problem at all? And I am, I am, I am conflating some kind of genuine writer's block as it were, some real emotional problem or some problem with the piece with a simple, um, laziness about my work, which I, I say compassionately because I, I have it all the time also. Uh, but I think, you know, what you don't want to do is um, is feed or legitimate the laziness any more than necessary, because very often the solution to a writing problem is to sit down and write. And I don't, you know, there are, there are exceptions, there are emotional exceptions, there are intellectual exceptions, but quite a lot of the time, the answer is to sit down and write. And I would say, if you're truly stuck, um, you know, it, to avoid your work, avoid it by writing something else, because it will at least remind you, ah, yes, this is the thing I do. This is the thing I find joy in and I find meaning in. And maybe if I can go write this other thing, it will lead me back to writing the thing I'm supposed to be writing in the first place. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The longer you go without writing, the harder it gets. I mean, it's like anything else. The longer you go without running, the harder it gets to start running again. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a question I always like to end the, the interviews with is on the subject of success. So what is your definition of success and how will you know if you have reached success in your writing life? You know, for me, that is mostly an internal matter and it's mostly piece by piece. Uh, and I don't say that to be um, glib or kind of uh, indulge in some kind of false modesty or something. I'm, I'm very mindful that I have an incredibly charmed uh, and, and fortunate writing life. I'm able to make my living as a writer, which, you know, even that as a baseline is, uh, feels ongoingly astonishing to me. Uh, I work at a magazine I always wanted to work for and I love my job and uh, I, I'm, you know, surrounded by, by brilliant colleagues and brilliant editors, and I'm grateful all the time. So I, it's not that I am not mindful of these extrinsic markers of success, and I'm enormously grateful for them. They enable my life. They really do. Uh, and I, I don't forget about it for a minute. 
But in terms of like the actual work, you know, a humbling thing about my life, you know, you can be a staff writer at the New Yorker and have a couple of books under your belt and be doing, you know, by all, by all measures, you can be doing very well for yourself and you can still sit down and feel that you're writing terribly. Uh, and as, as a colleague of mine once said, the problem with the last piece is it doesn't write the next one. <laughs> you know, it's every, every problem is a new one and every piece you have to write is its own bespoke beast and you have to it's not that you don't get better at certain things including just sitting down and doing the work or understanding structure or understanding length or transitions or whatever it may be you get better at certain things and yet every time on some level you are sitting down to solve a relatively novel set of problems and so success is always internal to the thing itself right like is is this book as close as I could get it to the kind of platonic ideal of it in my head? You know, is this article or this essay as close as I could get it to the thing I was picturing? That to me is always the measure of success. And I say as close as possible because there's always a gap, right? You are never gonna make the beautiful, shining, perfect thing that filled your mind when you sat down to write. And it's the dread of that gap and the, the fear of falling short that I think can, can create these moments of real writer's gap. Uh, or how much do you feel that you said to the best of your abilities under your current constraints, how much did you say the thing you wanted to say? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it's, you know, there there is always that gap, but if we've done Can't the best that, that we can, you know. Hello. So anyways, um, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. And uh, I wish you continued success with the projects that you've got on your to-do list in terms of your writing.